when it comes to ensuring your company has top-notch security practices. Things can get complicated fast. With Vanta, you can automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Vanta's market-leading trust management platform can help you unify security program management with a built-in risk register and reporting and streamline security reviews with AI-powered security questionnaires. Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, Flow Health, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash decoder. Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Designers and devs, you might be able to do your thing better on Wix Studio, a web platform with everything you need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Design teams get a ton of smart features that can take the grind out of web creation without it costing per-pixel control. Dev teams, you get a zero-setup, developer-first environment, combined with an AI code assistant and your preferred IDE for rapid deployment. Search Wix Studio today to explore the full range of features. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today I'm talking to Casey Newton, the founder and editor of the Platformer Newsletter and co-host of the Hard Fork Podcast. Casey is also a former editor here at The Verge and was my co-host at the Code Conference last year. Most importantly, Casey and I are also very close friends. So I will warn you, this episode's a little looser than usual, but I think you're really going to like it. I wanted to talk to Casey for a few reasons. One, the media industry overall is falling apart. There are huge layoffs at almost every media organization you can think of happening weekly but small newsletters seem to be a bright spot. So I wanted to talk about how Platformer started, how Casey got it to where it is, and how much further he thinks it can go. In particular, I wanted to talk about whether newsletters can replace the kind of journalism that's going away, and where Casey thinks the limits are after running Platformer successfully for several years now. And then I wanted to talk about Substack. Platformer started on Substack, and Substack itself started by promising a newsletter revolution that would create a new kind of journalism. Instead, the company seems beset by financial problems inherent to its business model, and it's faced an ever-increasing number of content moderation problems, including most recently when the company's decision to allow Nazis to monetize on its platform pushed a number of its customers away, including Casey and Platformer. And Casey was right in the middle of this particular controversy. He covered it in Platformer as he was deciding to switch away from Substack, and you'll hear him make the convincing argument that Substack's founders actually relish the fights they've gotten into over moderation, that the company is much more ideologically driven than he ever expected. And you'll hear him talk about the economics of leaving Substack. Switching to rival email platform Ghost has actually saved Platformer quite a bit of money, and Casey's run the numbers on how valuable Substack's vaunted recommendation system really is. I think you'll find them surprising. This episode is deep, but it's fun. Casey is just one of my favorite people, and he's not shy about saying what he thinks. Okay, Casey Newton of Platformer. Here we go. Casey Newton, you are the founder and editor of Platformer, also one of the most notable Verge traders of all time. Welcome to Decoder. (laughs) Hey, Neelai, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, I want to talk about Platformer. I feel like 
understanding how a successful small newsletter business works is very important in 2024, because the other thing I want to talk to you about is that the rest of the media industry is exploding. Yeah. And it feels like there's a real connection between those things. And I'm also curious your thoughts on how on earth we can maintain a healthy media ecosystem. Because right now, it doesn't seem like any of the people in charge know what to do. Ah, so true. So if you and I can save the media by the end of this episode, I think we will have done the world a service. Let's take a crack at it. Yeah, I think we should give it a shot. So let's yeah. start with Platformer. Yeah. I, I feel like I just need to... Casey and I are very good friends. This episode is... I'm worried it's going to be real loose. We're going to do our best. Uh, but Casey used to work at The Verge. Uh, you had a newsletter at The Verge. I will just tell everyone this. I love it when I'm no longer responsible for managing my friends. And I'm very proud of Casey for starting <laughs> Platformer, just on a personal selfish level. I don't have to worry about Casey. Now I can just send very him true. DMs. Yeah. I'm out of your hair. Uh, but you you were at The Verge. You had a successful newsletter here called The Interface. It was about platforms and democracy. You saw this opportunity to go take that elsewhere. Talk about that decision really quickly. And then I want to check in on how platformers do now. I can talk about it a bunch of different ways. But one is in the way that I have always tried to manage my career defensively. I used to work for a newspaper. And then the web came along and it disrupted newspapers. And I basically had to find a, a, a new job. Then... The web was thriving, right? Uh, like the, the early days of Vox Media, I was like, wow, there's like this huge, amazing new opportunity here. And then the social networks came along and they started to eat the web a little bit. And I thought, man, I love what I do so much. If I want to be able to do it forever, what is the way that I could have the maximum feeling of sustainability? And I just started to think more about maybe going out on my own. And instead of asking the CEO of a media company to pay me, asking readers to pay me directly. The second important thing was it was 2020. It was basically the middle of that, that pandemic year. I had I'd never been more, living more cheaply in my entire life. I was buying groceries twice a week, living yeah. in Kara Swisher's cottage, and I truly was never going to spend less money. And I thought, you know, <laughs> I, I have a little bit of savings. I could try this thing. And if I fall super hard on my face, I can at least make it like six months. But if I'm ever going to start a company, now's the moment. So it was kind of like the combination of those two things that led me to jump. I bought a pickup truck in that year. It was, it was, I had a very different reaction. I was like, what's the dumbest pickup truck? We all process that trauma in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you leave, you start platformer. A big part of the story is this is also the Substack moment. And we are going to end up talking about Substack and your reliance on them as a platform. That relationship has come to an end, but there was a big reliance on Substack as a platform in there. I feel like when you started, you understood that you were reliant on a little bit of Substack largesse and you were on the rocket ride with them as a platform and that relationship and that dynamic really changed. But what was it like at the beginning? I mean, it was really exciting. Substack itself had been inspired by a couple of newsletters that I read religiously and inspired me. So Ben Thompson's Stratechery, uh, Matt Levine's Money Stuff in Bloomberg. And Substack came along and said, these folks writing newsletters seems to be really successful, particularly Ben. Um, also Bill Bishop, who writes a newsletter called Cynicism about China. They had clearly built pretty amazing businesses writing their newsletters. And Substack came along and said, well, what if we just made that easy for anybody? So anybody 
somebody who wanted to take a crack at this could plug into some simple-to-use infrastructure, have some great software that emails your, your reporting, your analysis out to as many people who will subscribe, and Substack would take a 10% cut of that and, and build a business. And as I was considering my options in 2020, Substack really was the best. It let me move very quickly. It basically took care of the entire design process. Around this time, Substack was also giving advances to writers to entice them to leave. I wound up not taking an advance, but it did help me financially with a couple of things. It paid for a designer to, to create the platformer logo that we still use today. Um, it gave me a, a healthcare subsidy, and more importantly, just sort of helped me figure out how to get healthcare as a freelancer, something I never had to do before. And probably the most important thing was it said, if you get sued by a litigious person, we will uh, protect you for like up to a million dollars in legal fees. And I was like, wow, like that is the thing that could just maybe sink me right away if I go independent. And so the combination of those things made me say, hey, why don't I go for this? And yeah, like I said, it was pretty exciting. So I want to come back to those things because those are things that de-risk a small business, particularly healthcare. And then if you're in the media, someone mad sues you out of existence. Those are existential risks on a personal level and it sort of media business level. I want to come back to them and how you're thinking about them now that you're more established and you went to the platform ghost. But you start with Substack. Substack is giving out these deals and you know with various terms to various writers. The idea is all these writers will start small businesses that will grow to big businesses. Substack will take 10% of those businesses' revenues and they'll have a huge platform business. And you kind of look at that from the outside and you say, okay, that's a that's a SaaS company. Like you're a MailChimp. But even from the beginning, Substack thought of itself as something very different. And I think that self-image of Substack is what led to the current, oh boy, there's a lot of Nazis controversy here. I feel like I've talked to Chris Best a lot. Famously on the show, I asked him, why aren't you going to moderate the racist way? He did a horrible job of answering that question uh, by basically saying, I'm not going to. Uh, You could see it early, right? Oh, you're going to have to deal with this. How did it get from there to, oh, it boiled all the way over, and now a lot of prominent people are leaving our platform? Yeah. I mean, I think at first, I considered the way they would talk about the company as mostly marketing and branding. They did talk about it from very nearly the beginning as a corrective to the world created by social networks, that they were going to do less moderation. They wanted to be a place for the free exchange of ideas. They were going to take a really light touch with moderation. And because at the time, they really were just a SaaS company, like you say, it didn't stress me out too much. You know, I use a lot of infrastructure that is also used by horrible people. And so I just wasn't too pressed about it. I also assumed that if they had a problem that got worse and worse and started to threaten their business, they would grow up. Because what have we seen over and over again, Eli? Like these companies often start in a similar position of, well, we don't want to get involved. Eventually they have to get involved and they start to do content moderation. I want to come back to that coming to a head and them choosing to grow up or not grow up and you leaving. But I feel like no one ever talks about Act 2. There's Act 1 which is we started a band in the garage and there's act three. I'm Casey Newton, the founder and editor of platformer. And I host hard fork act two is the hard part, right? No one ever talks about it. Uh, how did that first year go? How did that second year go? you you hired Zoe Schiffer. You, you have a third person on staff. Now, what was that ramp like for you? Mostly it has gone great. 
Although in basically every way, it did not go totally according to my expectations. You know, as you mentioned, uh, I had been doing a newsletter at The Verge. I've been writing it five days a week. Vox Media was incredible to me. I was able to take my mailing list with me when I left. That gave me a huge head start. That's something a lot of other folks who start newsletters don't have. And so I was convinced that I would basically flip a switch after I started Platformer. 10% of my readers would subscribe and I would be thriving. And it is true true that enough people subscribe basically right away that I could breathe a sigh of relief and feel like, okay, this is just my job now. But it's also true I was not making as much money as I had been at The Verge. And so that meant I had to go and figure out what the business was. And I would say what I learned over that first year in particular was the business really is scoops. And this is kind of cuts both ways. The good thing about it, and that I want every journalist in the world to take into their heart is, if you break news, people will pay you money. And if you're doing it in a newsletter that you own, there is no limit to the amount of money that you can make. That is basically the single most empowering thing that I have learned about journalism since I started Platformer, right? The way that it cuts both ways, though, is there's a lot of days when I don't have scoops. In fact, most days I don't have a scoop. And when it has been a bit of a dry spell and you're just kind of not getting anything, it can be scary because something else you learn in this business is that your customers will churn. There is somebody who will pay you $10 to say, hey, great scoop. And then they will unsubscribe from you once they realize that they don't actually want to spend three or four days a week uh, with you in their inbox. The part of you that had to be entrepreneurial, and you have always been very entrepreneurial, You've always been driven to be like, what is the future of the business I'm in? That seems like the thing that keeps most people from going and starting a newsletter business. You want to write a newsletter. You want an audience. You want to be a reporter. You want to get scoops. That is one type of very focused work. You need to figure out what your audience audience wants and grow a business and do email marketing and all the rest of it is a very different kind of work. How are you balancing the two? I overestimated for a long time how many other people were going to want to do this. Because to me, it sort of felt very simple. It was like, well, if you love journalism and want to do it forever, and you want to live the life that you want financially, you now have more tools to be able to do that than you have ever had before. Everything I'm doing today, I could not have done in 2002 when I left college, right? Not, I mean, or if I was doing some version of it, I mean, it would look radically different, right? I think what I underestimated though, and I say this with true love and affection and empathy is most people just want a job. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> most people want to go to an office or stay at home and they want to do their work and they want to not think about it and they want to be able to to, you know, buy a house and raise a family. And I want that for everyone who wants it. Like, I truly do. I just became convinced that there was not going to be the world that I lived in anytime soon. And so I was just going to have to approach it differently. Yeah. I often say that uh, my ideal job is being an overpriced features writer at The Verge. That would be great <laughs> yeah, if I could just yeah. do that. But I, I need The Verge to exist yeah. to do that. And so yeah. uh, management, it is. That's right. You know, and, and if The Verge is stable, then at least a lot of other people can be features writers at The Verge. The piece of the puzzle where you had to balance your time, it led to you writing a little less, and then you hired some people and you're able to write more. I guess that comes to like the classic decoder question here, and it's very funny that I'm asking you this question. I don't know if the audience can tell. I am very amused by the fact that I'm interviewing my friend on my own podcast. I'm excited. Um, I feel very flattered. <laughs> it's just very funny to me. Um, how is Platformer structured? How, how does it work between the three of you? I own Platformer. A couple years ago, I did hire Zoe Schiffer. She has the title of managing editor. And because we are so small, 
like many very small companies, people wear a lot of hats where in any given day, I'm doing a little bit of reporting, I'm probably writing a column, I'm probably responding to some reader emails, maybe doing a little bit of customer support. Zoe is doing the same thing. The work balance and load just changes as the problems change. So we're in the middle of this platform transition that I'm sure we'll get into. That has created a lot of customer support issues. And Zoe has been amazing at just sort of grabbing that problem with both of her hands and wading into it. But the nice thing about being two full-time employees is that everything is just a conversation between two people who have a lot of trust in each other. And so, you know, I don't have to do a lot of like culture building and like rallying around the vision because we both have a pretty good sense of what the vision is. And so we can just sort of wake up each day and say, okay, well, what do we tackle? I think that's like the ideal way to work. Like you have a tiny group of people, maybe not more than three or four even. Yeah who all intimately know each other's strengths and weaknesses and what we're trying to do. And we're just going to go off and build it. But to do anything more ambitious, you need more scale. Is that on your mind? Oh, I should scale to 10 people or 15 or 50. I go back and forth on this all the time because I have had moments in my career when I was at the verge of being a manager and taking a step back from reporting and writing and working with people. And as you remember, I really didn't like that. And in fact, there was a moment where where I considered leaving The Verge and going to work for a tech company because an offer kind of came out of nowhere. And, you know, fortunately, after I sat with it, I realized I don't, don't want to go work for a tech company. I just don't want to manage people anymore. <laughs> and you were wonderful uh, to me, as you always were, as, as my boss, and, and created a role for me where I could report and write again. At Platformer, there is that similar tension of, well, the business is doing well enough that we think we could hire another person. As somebody who's very nervous about the state of media, I would like to get a lot more money in the bank. Like, I don't I don't think most media businesses work by like wanting to have someone's entire salary in the bank before they hire them, but that's basically how I think about it. I do think that we could get there with Platformer this year, but I'm trying to spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, well, what does it mean when that person shows up? What do I actually want them to contribute to the business? One of the amazing things about hiring Zoe was that she joined right when Elon was buying Twitter. She broke and helped me to break a bunch of stories about that takeover, and that generated hundreds and hundreds of new subscriptions for us at Platformer. And for a very tiny media company, that is important, that the people that you are hiring are creating the conditions for you to be able to continue paying them, right? And... I understand why a lot of reporters don't want to be in that position, right? Like I think you and I both wanted to live in a world where reporters could just roam free, (laughs) write whatever they wanted, and it would all just kind of work out in the end. And I think for a long time it did. I think we're now in this worse world where in order for the media businesses to work, whatever you're reporting and writing, somebody has to want to pay you 10 bucks a month or 100 bucks a year to read it. So I'm happy with with the state of things for us, but I also acknowledge this is not the ideal state of tech media. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. There's a, there's an incentive mismatch there that I hadn't even thought about until you brought it up just now. Uh, famously, as Casey knows, and uh, probably a lot of our listeners know, uh, we keep our traffic metrics under lock and key at The Verge. So like reporters don't know their page views. We don't set goals about page views. Uh, it's a bunch of tech reporters. They can figure it out if they want to. It's it's not Voldemort, but we just don't talk about it a lot because I do want reporters to go chase their curiosity and be personalities. And that is actually the thing that keeps us insulated from platform and algorithmic dynamics. Like the verge is just the verge. Like 
it needs to be the thing it is. And that, that's my belief that a great media property is confident in itself. Yes. Platform is very confident in itself, but there's two of you. And you're saying that you need to generate subscriptions with your work. And it feels like that is page views in a different way. And that works when it's two people. And it might be very different when it's 10. I think so. I mean, and I think a 10 person business is just very different. I don't think platformer will ever be 10 people, like certainly not in its current configuration. I started it first because I wanted to have a home for my own writing and reporting when it became possible to bring someone else on and do reporting in a similar vein. We did that. I can imagine that scaling up to maybe four or five people. Like I've sometimes talked about it as a Scooby gang. That's basically <laughs> as big as I think it can be, but I want it to feel consistent. And also I don't want to have a website where we're, we're publishing 10 stories a day because at that point again like I'm just a manager like that's not what I want to do I want to write and report so again you're you're catching me in the just the middle of a thought process that is not finished yet where I would love to be able to create more jobs in journalism but not that many more and I'm still not exactly sure like how they fit into what I'm doing so you know if you have any thoughts on the subject I'm all ears <laughs> Uh, well, we're going to fix media by the end of this so let me let me that's work right. them up yeah. uh, here's the next big decoder question it's the brand. So you got to do a good job. Yeah. How do you make decisions? What's your framework for making decisions? Hmm. In a way, I feel like I have a classic entrepreneurial answer, which is that I mostly am trying to scratch my own itch. You know, like I grew up reading a lot of media products that I loved, and I live in a world where I see almost nothing that reminds me of that. I don't see stuff that has big, beautiful design. I don't see a lot of stuff that goes super in-depth that feels like it has a lot of nuance, right? I see a lot of stuff that feels like screaming and like it's trying to manipulate me into feeling an emotion about everything, right? So it's like a lot of the way I make decisions is like, what like feels good to me, a person who grew up on the internet that I grew up on? And like, what would be a media product that served that person? And that winds up informing a lot of like what we cover, how we cover it, like why I hired the people that I hired. So yeah, I think it kind of starts there. We need to take a quick break. When we come back, Casey and I talk about Substack's latest moderation controversy and how it ultimately led him to leave the platform. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation told in five words. Try, explore, connect, pivot, transform. See what happened there? As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com slash US slash innovate. Support for this podcast comes from HIMSS. It can be challenging for men to speak about their health, and whether that's a fear of being vulnerable or just wanting to keep things private, there are just some things we would just rather keep to ourselves. HIMSS knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. HIMSS is a men's healthcare brand looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms and no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com decoder. 
That's H-I-M-S dot com slash decoder for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash decoder. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash decoder for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Prop G Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with platformers Casey Newton to talk about Substack, content moderation, and why he jumped ship for competitor Ghost. So this brings me to the recent big decision that you had to make, which is you left Substack, you went to a platform called Ghost, you took a little bit more control of the business. That whole drama started with an article by Jonathan Katz in The Atlantic titled Substack has a Nazi problem. There's no shades of gray in that one. That's the title. And it is true. Substack has a bunch of Nazis on its platform. You know, I asked Chris Best on the show a long time ago, are you going to, you going to moderate Substack if there's overt racism? And his non-answer was very revealing, right? They're just not going to do it. How did you react to that Katz article in the Atlantic? And how did that drive you to, to leaving Substack to go to Ghost? Well, at first I wasn't too concerned about it. In part, that's because I went to college with Jonathan M. Katz and he was the cartoonist for the college newspaper when I was the editor. So most of my memories of Jonathan Katz are just trying to get him to finish a cartoon on deadline. (laughs) So when I heard that he had some thoughts about Substack, I was like, well, you know, that sounds like Katz. You know, he's always been a bit of a pain in the ass. Um, (laughs) But in the aftermath of the article, and and I'm teasing Jonathan a little bit, the article was very good. In the aftermath of it, around 250 Substackers, write this open letter to the company just basically saying like, hey, are you going to let literal 1930s Nazis operate on your platform? And it's here we should say that Substack had changed a lot between 2020 when I joined the platform and the end of 2023 when this whole controversy unfolded. And the main way that it had changed was it had added all of these features that are familiar from social networks. They had built a Twitter clone called Notes that just let anybody go in and paste links. It's algorithmically ranked. You never know what you're going to see. It's not just the stuff that you're following. They had also built their own recommendations engine. They'd started sending out a weekly digest of here's some Substacks you might like. Why is that important? Well, it meant that all of a sudden, if there were Nazis on the platform, Substack was no longer pure infrastructure, and any platformer post could end up next to any Nazi post, and we would all just sort of be swimming in the same sea together. And in the aftermath of these Substackers sending this letter out, on December 21st, Hamish McKenzie, one of the co-founders, puts out this statement. What he says is, In effect, while we don't like Nazis, we are not going to hide away from the fact that they exist. We're not going to demonetize them. We think the best way that you fight Nazi ideas is through debate. And while we do have certain guidelines around removing certain things, that's our policy. And it really took me aback. And that was the day when I thought, okay, I actually have a problem. The Hamish response was really interesting, right? Because Substack wants to be infrastructure. That response to me reads as, well, we're just Cloudflare. 
we're just AT&T. Like we're just in the background, just giving people the, the core tools they need to be on the internet. And it is unfair and inappropriate for you to ask us to do stuff. And then they have an app in the app store. And then there is a Substack brand that is associated with the quote unquote intellectual dark web about which you can think whatever you want, but it is an editorial brand, right? And Hamish himself comes from the world of editorial. And I think he has to understand, oh, there's a, there's a vibe to Substack that is opposed to the quote unquote mainstream media and social networks and all this other stuff. I read that statement and I was like, you are trying to thread a needle that cannot be threaded. Yes. And it feels like they're still insistent that they're, they're going to figure out how to thread that needle. And I, I'm wondering if you think they ever can. Uh, my belief is that they, they cannot, and their insistence that they can will lead to disaster after disaster over time. Yeah, I think they tend to be very dismissive of all of these controversies. They have weathered previous controversies about uh, some uh, very anti-trans folks on the platform, anti-vaxxers on the platform. And I think that they see these as a series of relatively minor moral panics that have not ultimately mattered to their business that much. One of the main things that I learned during this whole process was that, I, at least I came to believe, Substack is much more of an ideological project than I had given it credit for when I joined the platform in 2020. I had thought in 2020, 20. This is a startup like most of the other Y Combinator startups I've ever written about. They try to make something people want. They're trying to grow at 10% a week, and they're trying to become billionaires. What I learned as this whole thing unfolded in December and January was that some huge part of these guys, I have to believe, actually enjoys being part of a culture war, and they like fighting it. And they like arguing for their particular side of the culture war, even if it winds up polarizing their entire user base and driving a lot of their users away. So that, to, if you want to like know what is something that surprised me during this whole process, it was that. That thing about driving your users away, you're not just a user of Substack. You were a customer. If you just think about how Substack makes its money it's a handful of whales and then a long tail. You have some publications that have hundreds of thousands or millions of subscribers that are paying 10 bucks a month or a dollar a month or whatever it is, but they're generating a lot of money of which Substack takes 10%. And then you have a lot of publications that are just free that send one email a month to no one. And that is completely subsidized. And it feels like driving away your whales just destroys your business. And they, they're the part of the company that is ideological is willing to burn it all down, even if their customers are driven off the platform. Yeah. And I mean, you and I had talked about this over the years. Neither you nor I have ever been able to figure out what is Substack's long-term play, because you want to talk about perverse incentives. The more money you made on Substack, the more expensive it was to remain there. But the level of service remained exactly the same. And so... If you thrived on the platform, Substack's bet was always, you will be making essentially so much money that you will not even notice the fact that we are taking 10%, but our network that we're going to build is so powerful, and it's going to drive so much paid conversion that that is how we will uh, keep you forever. I don't think that makes that much sense, but I also don't think it was a terrible bet. Like I think it was like at least worth running the experiment. But yeah, now you're in this moment where people like me are looking around being like, you know what? Like I, I don't actually need to be here and uh, we, we've started to leave. And so that problem of people are always kind of incentivized to leave Substack once they get successful, it just gets bigger. Was that network ever valuable for you? I feel like Substack started and it was the best way to monetize a big Twitter following that had ever existed because Twitter had never figured it out on its own. And that was great. And then there was a moment when Twitter was in decline and Substack's sort of internal referrals 
were working, and then that started to decline. Was the network ever really valuable enough for you to think twice? I'm so glad you asked this question because I have been spending a lot of time thinking about it. And there's one very tangible way where, yes, the network was valuable. And that was in adding free subscribers to platformers. So when I took my mailing list from The Verge, it was 24,000 people. When we moved from Substack to Ghost three years later, it was about 176,000 people. In the last year alone, platformer added 76,000 free subscribers. I would love to tell you that was because we broke so much news last year, but that's not actually what happened. What happened was Substack built this recommendation product where if you started a Substack, Neli, and then hopefully you recommend my newsletter, the second that someone subscribes to you, before they've necessarily even read anything you've ever written, Substack shows this little pop-up that says, hey, Neli also likes Casey's Substack. You want to subscribe to that one? The box is already checked and you click OK, (laughs) maybe because you want to subscribe to my newsletter, maybe because you're just trying to get the pop-up to go away, maybe you have no idea what's happening. My point is, Substack is growing newsletters through dark patterns. Yeah, yeah. And That's a social network pattern through and through. And and so I've heard from so many people in the aftermath of all this saying, Casey, I want to leave, but the network, the network. I'm like, trust me, go check out the paid conversion that you are getting from all of these folks who are signing up for your newsletter, it's probably not going to be that much. You know, I uh, I ran the numbers, which, you know, I never should do because I'm bad at math, but I did run the numbers <laughs> at the end of 2023. And as far as I can tell, despite adding 76,000 free subscribers to Platformer through this dark pattern on Substack in 2023, we ended up net 200 paid customers on the year. So in other words, we basically stayed flat for the entire year, despite adding 75% to our, our free subscriber base. So look, when you dig through the numbers, you'll also find that there were a lot of people that bought an annual subscription to, to Platformer because their credit card was already on file with Substack and Substack made it a heck of a lot easier. And maybe those people never would have bothered getting their credit card out of their wallet to enter it into Platformer. So I'm sure all of those cases existed, but I can tell you when I was thinking about what is it going to cost me to leave, I thought, well, I'm definitely gonna grow a lot slower on the free side in, in 2024, but it's quite possible that I'm going to monetize just as well or better. You brought up credit cards, which is interesting. You very notably sort of transparently played out your process with Substack. You published that you were going to go meet with Substack's executives. You were not allowed to talk about what you were, but you were like, look, I met with them. I've come to the conclusion they're not changing. We're leaving. And then you said something in there that I think a lot of people took exception to, which is I'm going to ask Stripe, which is a payment processor, if this is okay with Stripe. And people took exception to it because Stripe is an infrastructure provider. They do have terms of service, which are stricter than Substacks, which is fascinating that they don't allow you to use Stripe for racist things. But they're supposed to be the infrastructure provider. Why did it occur to you to talk to Stripe? And how do you feel about the backlash to that comment? I mean, I, I accept the criticism. I think it's fair to criticize me on this point. I think what yeah. I don't think people fully believe me when I say this, but I truly did reach out to Stripe in a spirit of journalistic inquiry. And my question was exactly what you just raised. Stripe has a set of terms of service that says this kind of thing is prohibited. And as far as I could tell before I met with the founders, what they were saying was, if you were a literal 1930s Nazi and you survived <laughs> the end of the Third Reich and you have a substack, you can monetize it. That was that was my reading of Hamish's statement. And I thought it was worth going to their payment processor and saying, hey, are you cool with the fact that this customer is doing this? And um, I think that that was worth doing. And Stripe never got back to you from what I can tell. 
there was a little bit of back and forth, but the the net result of it was that they never really had to like weigh in on anything specific because because a lot of the stuff that I had sent in to Substack, Substack did remove, and you know so on and so forth. But in what, what case I will is say, <laughs> and now I'm on Ghost. I will say that you know I talked to Alex Samos from Stanford, who's somebody who I look to on these content moderation issues, and he was basically like, "It's not fair play to go after the payment processor because practically speaking, they're almost never going to have any awareness of this stuff. So like, you generally shouldn't go after them." And so you know, again, I, I accept the criticism. But like, am I sorry I asked Stripe about it? No. Yeah. I mean, I, I was I, I was legitimately curious. The last question I want to ask about Substack, and then I want to talk about Ghost and where things go from here. Because Substack is an ideological project, the people who participate in it need a villain. And then they can say like, the mainstream media is out to get us, or this is what they don't want you to hear, or they're mad because we're going to replace them. Or, I've heard all this stuff about The Verge for a long time from like YouTubers. There's nothing I love more than when people call the Verge the mainstream media. <laughs> like I remember when it didn't exist, you know? Uh yeah. it's like thank you for saying I made it is basically yeah. my reaction to that. But that discourse like needs a villain, right? It needs something to point at that it is an opposition to. Otherwise it doesn't work. And the thing that it is in opposition to is crumbling. And I'm just wondering do you think that will fade is the actual mainstream media like begins to crumble because it seems like the center of that movement is defined in opposition to something that is going away. And I don't know what the new center will be except for being a 1930s Nazi. (laughs) I think there will always be an elite. You know, I think that the the fundamental nature of that conflict is that there are a bunch of let's face it, mostly rich white people who want to complain about what they see as, you know, the the forces that threaten them. And so they go up against the elite and that manifests as a lot of criticism of the mainstream media. But even in a world where the mainstream media is much more fragmented or much smaller, there will still be mainstream figures that they can throw tomatoes at. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, what we find over and over again, I mean, you look at somebody like Libs of TikTok, like Libs of TikTok's whole job is just to make up new main characters to try to target for her harassment, right? So um, I I think that sort of thing is just going to continue. All right. You had your choice of platforms when you decided to leave Substack. One thing you you have said to me, which you hinted at here, was you realized all those other choices were cheaper, that Ghost and WordPress or whatever would just be cheaper to operate on than the fees that Substack was charging you. How did you decide to pick Ghost? We looked at, I guess, like sort of three options. One was just a complete roll your own stack, you know, get your own hosting provider, get your own email provider, stitch it all together with a bunch of services. That felt really complicated. I also felt like it would put me in the position of being a full-time IT person in addition to the other roles that I have at Platformer. You know, some people were sort of saying like, dude, if you're like running your own website, you're going to like face DDoS attacks. Like the website is just going to go down at random (laughs) hours of the day. And like, that's your problem now. So that was one reason why I didn't want to do that. The other reason was putting that stuff together would have taken time and I was motivated to move pretty quickly. So we didn't consider that option that seriously. Although I will say it like remains maybe the ultimate destination of platformer, assuming that like the platform that we're on isn't able to, to get us what we want. The other two that we looked at more seriously were Beehive and Ghost. Beehive is spelled probably worse than any other 
other startups in the world. It's B-E-E-H-I-I-V. If you know a worse spelling of any startup, like message me. I haven't heard of one. But um, they were super nice people. I was actually really impressed with them. I was really impressed with their product. They were super friendly to us. So we had a really, really great time like chatting things through with them. But man, they're also a venture-backed email startup, Neelai. And I just felt so burned by the Substack experience. And I thought, I don't really know the guys that run this that well. I don't really know who their investors are that well. I don't know what kind of pressures they're under. I don't know how good their business looks. I don't know how they might change the terms on their creators you know, in six months or a year. And I just thought, even though this has some really nice features and is actually cheaper than the option that we wound up going with, I can't do it. So we kicked that one aside. That left Ghost. Ghost was interesting to me for a number of reasons. One is it's operated by a nonprofit. It is open source software. So anyone can use it for anything. It is infrastructure. And yes, that means that Nazis can use open source Ghost to make websites, right? Similar to WordPress, Ghost also has a hosted version called Ghost Pro. You pay them money, and there the terms of service are more serious. So John O'Nolan, the CEO of Ghost, uh, committed to me that they're not going to let any Nazis, literal 1930s Nazis, use the Ghost Pro service to build websites. Just by saying that, that meant that Ghost was a better home for platformer than Substack was, right? And then, you know, you look at everything else. It's like they have a free concierge service. We sent them some emails, gave them access to a few things. They built us a new website. They ported over our entire mailing list. They ported over all of our customer relationships from Stripe. They did it over a weekend. And in some very real sense, the only difference between me being on Substack and me being on Ghost is that I type into a different box now and I save 10% of my annual revenue, right? So <laughs> that was basically why we picked them. And, you know, yes, there are some trade-offs and yes, there are some like risks and I'm happy to talk about them, but that, that was why we made the choice. So you go to Ghost. Ghost is not providing you with legal support. I assume they're not helping you get health insurance. How have you figured that stuff out? I was really hoping if I got sued, I could just like call you and just be like, yo, Eli, what do I do? <laughs> I think I used, to, I used to be a lawyer. My, my wife is still a lawyer. We'll have Becky talk to you. I mean, if I could uh, get Becky to help, that'd be great. No, I mean like, you know, you you buy libel insurance is the answer. Like, I mean, yeah. there are products in the market that that solve this problem. Doesn't mean it's not still a risk to the business. It is for anybody, even if you have libel insurance. But, you know, something you learn in business is that there's a lot of big, scary problems. And the answer to them is like, well, you just buy a product. And so like, that's one of those. Yeah. Is, I feel like for people who might just be starting the idea that I need to go buy libel insurance and health insurance and all this other stuff is terrifying. Yeah. Is that, yeah. do you think that will hold people back from starting businesses like this? Yes. I mean, one of the things Substack was good at back in the day was trying to figure out every single reason why you wouldn't join Substack. This was like something that they actually deserve a lot of credit for. And they realized it was healthcare. It was legal. It was, I don't know how to design a website, right? And they just started chipping away at that stuff. Eventually, because their business is not really thought through, they had to stop offering all these services because they essentially couldn't afford to have them and still meet their, their valuation. But they were solving real problems. And that is a reason why I think fewer people will will go into this. I mean, like I should say that really the only reason I was able to do this was because I had a great job in media that let me grow a big audience and save money. And, you know, very few people are in that position. And so, you know, that's just something I feel very grateful for and, and wish everybody had access to. So you're on Ghost now. You said there might be some future where you do roll your own stack. Does that seem like a likely future or is that just in the back of your head? I need to be prepared for it. 
I mean, I think it depends if I can ever convince you to come make websites with me. Because, like, <laughs> if you would, then, like, yes. Like, I would just have you help me do that. Um, I really like making websites. That's why I still work in a media company. We run the last website on Earth. <laughs> That's right, you do. <laughs> God, that, you should make a Verge t-shirt that just says the last website on Earth. I think it would be a big seller. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back to talk about what's happening in the media business and how the ideas behind Platformer might help us fix it. Once upon a time in America, there was no such thing as all-you-can-eat shrimp. And then the world changed. Today, shrimp is the most popular, the most consumed seafood in America. The endless shrimp fiesta is an American institution. But that shrimp fiesta comes at a steep price. Here at Gastropod, we found out that hidden behind the delicious shrimp on your plate is environmental disaster and modern-day slavery. So can you have your shrimp and a clear conscience, too? Actually, yes, and we've got the secret to help you unlock true, lifelong shrimp happiness. Listen to the latest episode of Gastropod wherever you get your podcasts. We're back talking with platformers Casey Newton about the forces crushing the news business and what the path forward for journalism might look like. This is a very inspiring story. Casey is very entrepreneurial. He works at a website that was one of many, one of many venture-backed websites in 2011. You leave, you start your own company. Zoe is amazing. She's an amazing reporter. You break a lot of news. You have a lot of impact. You get the podcast with the time. You're doing all this stuff. Uh, you just signed a distribution deal with our old colleague, Josh Chapolsky, who now runs something called Sherwood Media at Robinhood. Congratulations. You have a thriving little media business. But the question I think I continue to come back to is, can you have enough of those to replace the media across America? Can you have a platformer for, I don't know, statehouse coverage in Madison, Wisconsin? That feels like the thing that has not actually happened. I think the answer is no. And like, and it sucks, you know? It, it doesn't feel good to win a game that feels like it doesn't have that many winners, you know? The media is a business that we want to have lots and lots of winners. And I think in a lot of ways, we were better off during a time when most Americans could get most of their information for free just by visiting websites without having to like log in and without having to to do a paid subscription, right? I think it enabled more more coverage, more kinds of coverage, riskier coverage, like more investigations. There are some real limitations to what I do. Most of the stuff that I do, it's like, if it takes longer than a day to do, it's really hard for me because I write three columns a week, which puts some real limitations on what kind of reporting I can do. That's actually one of the reasons why I hired was like, okay, well, maybe we can share this burden a little bit and give ourselves some more time to report. But in terms of like, how do you get from like the thing that I'm doing to a healthy tech press corps? The only answer that gives me any optimism is not actually what I'm doing at Platformer, although I think, you know, there's probably some some version of this will work for some number of people. I get really inspired by what I see at Defector, at 404 Media, these collectives of really talented journalists who maybe raise a little bit of money, maybe just sort of raise some from their friends and family, come together, collectively own the business, build an authentic relationship with their audiences using social media, monetize that well enough, and do it really sustainably. And while I don't know if you can like rebuild the press corps that we had in 2011 that way, I think you actually can have a much bigger press corps than we are otherwise going to have in three or four years. 
So those are interesting publications because they are very different than Platformer. Uh, I will say this reductively about Platformer. You know I love you. You know I love Platformer. Platformer is a trade publication. Yeah. Like its audience is executives at tech companies and, and, and within that, the people who work at trust and safety and in government at tech companies. And I, that's a very lucrative audience. You've picked the right group of people there. You go to other places and then there are other businesses that are doing well. Axios is a trade publication for DC professionals. There's one I read all the time called Fierce Wireless, which is just for like telecom professionals. Is it for gay telecom professionals? <laughs> Fierce Wireless. Yes, honey. Oh my God, Casey. That's the end of the show, everybody. We had we had 20 minutes left, but we're just going to run ads from now until the end of the hour. Gotta look up this Fierce Wireless. <laughs> but like, you know, this. trade publications. Yeah, they yeah. do well because people need information to do their jobs. And that's lucrative. You go to consumer publications, like The Verge, a consumer technology publication. I'm competing with a bunch of YouTubers who are free. You go to sports. I think Defector is doing really well. But you look at The Athletic that The Times bought. And The Athletic's ambition was, we're going to replace every local newsroom in America because people will pay for sports. It worked out for The Athletic in that they sold to The Times. And I don't know if it has worked out for The New York Times, which is fascinating to consider. Is there a tension there between, okay, a bunch of trade publications can work, a bunch of very targeted, hyper-specific interest publications maybe can work, but the broader news audience is not going to pay? And that seems very dangerous because TikTokers exist and YouTubers exist, and you can just fill your media diet with free stuff. Yeah. I mean, I here's where I will gas platformer up a little bit. So one yeah. of the the things that I took from Ben Thompson was he makes one edition of every week free, which means that he gets to reach his full mailing list. You know, Ben has no ads in his publication. It's like he sends out really, really smart thoughts to a lot of people every single week. And it's the sort of thing that, you know, before he helps you invent this model people really were not getting that information for free. And platformers the same way. We're, we publish three times a week now, but really almost all of the biggest scoops we've ever had, we have sent out for free to as many people as we've had. Other people have done something similar. You know, Judd Legum writes a newsletter called Popular Information. It's kind of a, you know, a, a progressive newsletter, writes a lot about politics. And while Judd has a paid version, he makes almost every edition free. And then he just asks his readers, hey, did you value this? Consider supporting me and and that will enable me to keep doing this. And that's been hugely successful for him. So I think that there is a lesson in here that even the trade publications, even these things that feel small and fringy, they can do high impact work. They can send it out to to a huge audience. I mean, I was shocked when I started yeah. looking at the numbers, like platformers getting a million visitors a month and has for a long time, you know, it's, it's just, you know, two, two people writing like that. That feels like pretty cool to me. So I think that there is something, again, I realize we're st still kind of nibbling at the margins of the problem, but I do want to say like, that's not nothing. Do you worry about the problem where all the real information, the real reporting goes behind paywalls and liars and conspiracy theorists just are free and like that, yes. that's a dynamic that I see across every platform right now. Yeah. And I worry about it more in like politics and sort of national news than I worry about it in tech. But like, yes, that's, 
a real problem. And we should say, like, other countries have come up with one really good solution to this problem, which is publicly funded media. And I realize that that is probably a non-starter in the United States for the foreseeable future. But when you look, countries that invest in public media, whether it's the UK with the, the BBC or like Australia has pretty good public media, their democracies are generally considered stronger by political scientists. So we know that news is never going to pay for itself. It never really has. It is only typically made money as part of some bundle that like people are mostly subscribing to for the games and the cartoons. So nothing about the internet is going to change those dynamics in ways that favor us as journalists. And so I think we need to do a combination of inventing new stuff, but also borrowing from what we already know works. Inventing new models is really important. I agree with you. This is happening in the context of the old model getting completely upended by generative AI on one side, by basically the end of distributing web pages by every platform on earth, including Google search, which when that domino falls, like there is no more web business. So, you know, the platform era distributing web pages was a great business for a lot of people for a long time. Facebook would distribute your web pages. Twitter would, to some much smaller extent, distribute web pages. Snapchat, for one brief bizarre moment, had like a news business embedded in it. And the idea was you'd make news, you would put the link on Facebook, Facebook would boost it, tons of people would come in and they would like see a display ad or something. And all the platforms work the same way. Then Facebook pivoted to video, stopped displaying web pages. Everybody knows all the rest here. The last thing where you can get an audience to go to a web page is Google. And it just feels like Google is going to turn off the spigot at any minute. And we are watching businesses collapse around us as that traffic source dries up. And then importantly, as advertisers realize they don't want to buy banners and boxes on web pages when they can just buy whatever slice of the TikTok audience to do whatever happens on TikTok. Is there coming back from that? Like I say that out loud and I, again, run the last website on earth. I feel like I've there's some things to invent there that maybe help. But it feels like no one else is inventing stuff. Do you see any recovery from that disaster or is that we need to burn this down so we can grow a new kind of forest? I do really worry that, yes, that that forest fire sweeps through and kills a lot of stuff. I mean, it's that's not even a prediction. We've already seen, as we're recording this, the messenger is shutting yeah. down, right? Um, and that was explicitly built on like fa- old Facebook strategies. And I think everyone was like, that's never going to work. And in less than a year, it didn't work. It's the only surprising thing about it, I think, is sort of how quickly it collapsed. But like, yes, like if, if, you know, when it started, they had asked me and you, like, how is this going to fail? We would have explained it, you know, whatever. Um, (laughs) Something you and I have talked about for a long time is that there is a difference between an audience, and traffic. And if you want to talk about the messenger in particular, no disrespect to the many talented journalists uh, who worked there. I met one of them just the other day. Seemed great. The messenger only ever had traffic. You know, I understand if I were trying to build a big scaled up ad supported business, of course I would want the maximum number of pages. Like how else are you going to build an ad business? But it's unquestionable to me that media companies became too reliant on Google and didn't spend enough time thinking about their product and about how do you build something that people are going to seek out and have an authentic relationship with. Like something that I am proud of about Platformer is I truly believe that everybody who reads it, at least in their inbox, knows that they're reading platformer. I think most people reading news through Google search have no idea what they're reading. And I don't think they care. And I think it's really hard to build a big media business that no one cares about. 
On the business side of most of these media publications, you just have people who do not have very good editorial instincts. In our business, for very good reasons, we separated the editorial people from the business people. That did a lot of good for the integrity of our businesses. But I also think it has been a catastrophe for the industry overall because you have these buildings full of people who don't understand each other's problems well enough to help each other build something successful. So, you know, while I will say, like, this creates some challenges for me. Like, Platformer started an ad business last year. We had to come up with a set of ad policies. We had to decide, you know, like, we're actually not going to take any advertising from anybody we cover because we think that that would be bad for our business. But, like, other media businesses don't have to make that same kind of trade-off because they've just sort of separated those two things out. So there's there's all trade-offs here, but I feel like I have a much better sense of like who my audience is and what they want and how I can fulfill that and how I can get them to pay me than like the folks running the messenger did. Yeah. The difference between audience and traffic is something I think about all the time. You have to go build an audience, but the thing that keeps most people from building an audience is distribution, right? Like yeah. you can very quickly go build uh, an audience on an algorithmic platform or what feels like an audience. And then the platform shifts and you got to like start over. And this is the story of every YouTuber and why they burn out. Right. And it makes everything the same. Like, I think if you took the the top 50 people on any platform and looked at the stuff they make, I feel like you would have more similarities and differences in terms of structure and form and how things are formatted. I look at the stories about Mr. Beast doing 50 different thumbnails on a video. And I'm just like horrified, <laughs> yeah. right? Like it, maybe I shouldn't be, he's much more successful than we are, right? Like at doing the thing that he does, but it's like, Oh, you are just constantly in a conversation with someone else's algorithm. And I, the part where you're like, I'm going to build an audience. It seems like email is still the only distribution pipe that doesn't dramatically affect what you make. Do you see any others or is it still email? Well, I mean, if we want to sort of get like uh, really futuristic here, the reason that yeah. email is a really stable platform is because it's built on a protocol, right? And it's a protocol anyone can build on. It's not controlled by any one person. And one of the most exciting things in tech, and I know you're excited about this too, is the fact that we're building these new open protocols. Activity Pub is one. The AT protocol, which is what Blue Sky is built on, is getting much less attention, but I actually think is super interesting and, and worth yeah. sort of debating on its own terms. We're going to have them on very soon too, actually. Awesome. Um, so uh, they're also going to be on Hartford next week. So tune into that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've got to plug your podcast a little yeah, bit. Yeah, exactly. This podcast uh, itself yeah. is an open protocol merging That's of Hartford right. and Dakota. That's right. So what is cool about these protocols? Well, if they work out, it is going to be the case that as with email, no one platform controls them. Users are going to have a lot more control over what they're seeing. And if you're a publisher, maybe you're able to devise ways where you can build an audience, reliably serve that audience, not just feel like you're surfing algorithm changes forever, and you're able to build something a little bit more substantial there. So I do think that after a long winter, the attention of, in particular, like the developers and the nerds that you actually need to care about this stuff it is turning back to protocols. And I do think that we are going to see good progress there this year. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. I don't think I've mentioned on this show, but I've mentioned on the Verge cast plenty of times where we are going to do some federated stuff to the Verge in order to preserve our status as the last website in the world. That's my goal. What's interesting there is that the platforms themselves are taking some dips into it. You mentioned Blue Sky. Threads is going to support ActivityPub. But there's a tension in there too. Threads, you know, Adam Masseri, who runs Threads, has sort of openly said, look, we're going to have news here, but we that's not the point of this. 
no news, please. Uh, there, it doesn't seem like links travel on threads. Like threads is like a self-contained kind of experience. Twitter used to be a place where you would distribute news and now it is called X. I'm told it is a video first platform. I don't know, man. I, it's like, I don't know what's going on there, but it, the big platforms feel like they're getting more and more self-contained. They're more and more about like individual user behaviors or maybe a handful of big creators. And they're not about supporting companies or supporting the new, like explicitly not about supporting the news in the case of threads. Do you think that we end up with like a parallel infrastructure or a parallel ecosystem of news companies or is the audience still on platforms? You talk to the platform executives a lot more than I do. How are they feeling about that split? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, what you said is true. They just don't see the news as ever being like hugely important to them, at least in terms of how many visitors do they have? How much engagement are they getting? How much money are they making? So I think news is going to be a little bit of an afterthought, but I think that they also just have reason to offer APIs that publishers can take advantage of. They have reason to create monetization schemes that publishers or individual creators can take advantage of. I think it can probably work well enough that something is is able to thrive there. So I think the media is always going to have to be sort of like, you know, tugging on their robes, begging them to, <laughs> to help us out. Um, but, you know, they, they all also read the media. And like, we do have influence over what they do. And I think we can keep using it. Yeah. And it's funny how the billionaires of your like cared and thought it was their public service to just like lose money on the media for a while in this class of billionaires, they'll lose money on the side, but they won't actually solve the problems with the companies they run to, yeah. to make it work. There's a real discrepancy there, right? It's, Jeff Bezos would be like, I need the Washington post to make money. And it's like, have you thought about building some distribution for these web pages? And like, there doesn't seem to be a connection there. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me. I, I mean, I think if they thought that there were more opportunity in media, they'd probably spend more time thinking about it. You know, like media is just a really hard problem, again, because it mostly just never has paid for itself. I don't think any of these billionaires have any brilliant ideas for how to reverse that problem. My wish for the billionaires is instead of trying to find some old legacy publication like the Washington Post or, or the Atlantic and taking that over and trying to help it lose a little bit less money, they would go out and they would find more defectors and they'd find more 404 medias and say, what could you do with $5 million a year and see if we could sort of seed the ecosystem with a bunch of new media startups yeah. with really talented people, because I think they get a lot more bang for their buck than they would by trying to sort of like rescue some 150-year-old publication. I actually think part of the instinct that drives the we'll fix the legacy media is, one, they wish they were on the cover of those legacy magazines. I, I, I think there's more to that theory than anyone wants to truly admit. And two... It comes back to what you were saying, which is you want to make a thing that you like. And so a bunch of people are looking at the sort of algorithmic media and saying, this is garbage. What if I just get in there and meddle with the editorial a little bit? And then they get in there and they meddle with the editorial a little bit, or they tell the big newspaper, be more centrist or like whatever they think they want. And it turns out that doesn't play on platforms, which they run. And then it doesn't go. And it's like, this is the problem is not the product, like the editorial product, the the problem is the distribution environment that forces the product to be this other thing. And I'm I'm hopeful that we're in the moment where that cycle is breaking. I'm also very worried that that appears to be the moment the cycle is breaking in the middle of what promises to be a very contentious election year. And I am wondering, literally the purpose of Platformer is to cover platforms and democracy. 
so I want to end by just asking the the kind of the bigger question. It is going to be a very contentious election year. Are, do you think our media ecosystem, our, our social media platform ecosystem, are we ready for it? I'm worried. You know, we've already seen these cases where generative AI has been used to create uh, synthetic versions of Joe Biden's voice making robocalls. I expect we're going to see a lot more of that sort of thing. I think we're going to see more layoffs in the media industry. That's going to mean less coverage of some of these big issues. I think the national election will still be covered really aggressively and really well. I worry about the down ballot races. And if you're running for state Senate or like attorney general in some state and somebody creates a deep fake of you, is there going to be anyone in the media to come to the rescue and say, hey, this person is getting a raw deal. They never said that thing. That's the stuff that I worry about the most. You know, we're we're predisposed as journalists to always kind of train our attention on the biggest thing. But there's all going to be all these medium and small things that we used to rely on the local media for, and to some really tragic extent that just no longer exists. So, you know, th- this is one of those things where it's like we need the kind of whole of society thinking about this. We need a public investment in media. We need philanthropy um, to, to address this problem. We need entrepreneurial young journalists to, to start their own newsletters and see what kind of contribution they can make and like find an audience. But like we're in for a, a really tough period, you know? And, and if if you're listening and you wonder how you can help, I mean like subscribe to something, truly. Um, <laughs> it does it does matter. <laughs> it does yeah. it does help. And um, you know, that's one way that you can show that that you care is by like supporting media that means something to you. It feels like all the platform companies have talked about knowing that generative AI is a problem. There's a bill now because because they were deep fakes of Taylor Swift on X now there's legislation. There's a whole story in there. There's there's a 10,000-word PhD thesis about that exact cause and effect. But there's legislation now. Do you think the platforms are going to do anything to tamp down on the deep fake problem, the generative AI problem? Yeah, I, th- I think they're going to have to. You know, platforms don't want porn on them for a lot of reasons, but one of them is like if you let it on, it just takes over everything, and that's not the environment they want. You know, keep in mind these. I write about platforms and democracy, but mostly what I've learned is that they're just digital shopping malls, yeah. and so they have to get rid of this stuff. So yeah, they're going to do a pretty good job of that. I think the issue is we have all of this what they're starting to call unsecured AI, so this open source AI, and you can still create these images. And there probably just are going to be places on the internet where it can be shared. We know it can be shared in Telegram, for example. There's basically going to be no content moderation there. I'm still skeptical that X is going to do meaningful content moderation despite hiring 100 people and patting themselves on the back about it until they <laughs> broke their arm. Um, so that's the kind of place where I worry about it. But what I think of as like the respectable platforms, the Facebooks, Instagrams, TikTok, like, yes, they're going to move aggressively, but there is still real harm that is going to be done. Last question. A lot of people listening to this are probably thinking about the chaos their various industries are in. Is this still a good time for people to go and set up shop on a platform like Ghost or Beehive or Substack even and and enter this sort of independent media fray? I mean – Because it felt the, like the window yeah. that you leapt into it was the window. Like you nailed that timing and that window was open for a while and it feels like the window – you know, windows open and close and it feels like it is riskier than ever right now but people – there's a lot of people who got laid off. Like they might be thinking about it. Do you think there's opportunity there still? 
I, you know, I've always thought that in media, like to succeed, you need a combination of an editorial insight and a distribution insight, right? And I think that like I was able to land both of those things when I left with platform and my distribution uh, insight was that email was just a better way of like keeping in touch with an audience. But also, and I didn't realize this at the time, I was able to take advantage of Twitter because I did have a relatively large audience there. I was able to blast out every edition to a fair number of followers. Those people became subscribers. That was really important. I just don't think that part is particularly true anymore that like you're not going to be able to get the same bang for your buck on Twitter. Um, promotion of your stuff across social is much more diffuse. It's weaker. You have to publish on five times as many platforms to get maybe 50% of the impact, right? But at the same time, Neelai, like when I started Platformer, one of the thoughts I had was like, all I need is a thousand people pay me a hundred bucks a year and I have a pretty good job. At 2,000 people, it's an amazing job. 3,000 people, that's more than anyone will ever pay me. And the internet is still big enough, and there are enough amazing readers out there that they will create that job for someone. You know, As much as we talk about the struggles of the media industry, look at how many people are thriving on YouTube. Look at how many people are thriving on TikTok or on Twitch, right? People who have been able to create lives beyond their wildest dreams just having fun online. That is still happening at the same time. And it is often not people who are doing amazing public interest journalism, but the basic dynamics are still there. Children are growing up in a world where they are paying for Twitch streamers and they are paying for YouTubers and they are buying merch. And I fully believe those people are going to continue to come to The Verge, The Platformer, and so many other websites and say, yeah, here's your hundred bucks. This means something to me. So that is a dynamic that is putting the wind at our backs. And it is one of the reasons where if you can nail that, have a good editorial idea and manage your cost structure, then truly, I do believe the world is still your oyster. Okay. That's a great place to end it. I do want to say that reporter Casey would have never said the words manager cost structure. <laughs> cost that- structure is really important. <laughs> Nobody wants to say we need to build media businesses that don't have dedicated HR and accounting departments, because that yeah. seems really disrespectful to your HR and accounting department. <laughs> and yet... If you have three people at your newsletter, do you need HR? You know, like, do you need in-house counsel? Probably not. Like, so one of the paths forward is just rethinking some of that stuff. So if you have an HR complaint for Platformer, (laughs) don't call anyone. Yeah. Just walk away. Your head hung low. (laughs) That's great. I pre. That's great. That's the kind of business I work at for sure. Well, the fact that I know the, exact, the two yeah. of you is like, I, I'm just guessing it's going to be fine. <laughs> I hope. Fingers crossed. Uh, Casey, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for being on Decoder. Tell the people where they can find you. Uh, you can find Platformer at platformer.news, and you can find Hard Fork wherever you get your podcasts. But listen to Decoder first. It, it comes first, first alphabetically, so just sort alphabetically. That, <laughs> that's how you should pick. That's right. So after Neil confuses you about his stuff, if you just kind of want it in plain English, come over to Hard Fork. We'll tell you the real story. <laughs> All right, look, activity pub is the future. That's it. That's that's decoder. Thank you so much, Casey. <laughs> thank you. I'd like to thank Casey for taking the time to join Decoder. I'd like to thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed it. In case you missed our announcement, Decoder is now publishing twice a week. Our classic interviews with CEOs and other troublemakers like Casey are now on Mondays. And on Thursdays, we'll have shorter episodes explaining big topics in the news with Verge reporters, experts, and other friends of the show. If you have big ideas on who we should cover or what we should talk about in the show, we'd love your feedback. You can email us at decoder at We really do read every email. 
or you can hit me up directly on threads. I'm at Reckless1280. We also have a TikTok. It's really fun. Check it out. It's at DecoderPod. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really love the show, hit us with that five-star review. Decoder is a production of The Verge, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Kate Cox and Nick Statt. It was edited by Callie Wright. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time.